0: Hey, everybody, Tom Salemi of Device Talks here. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Again, sorry we didn't get you an episode last week, but I'm sure you enjoyed that Striker Talks episode with Robert Cohen, and you can hear more from Robert Cohen and Anne Azdwa and Mike Mahoney and Tom Poland at Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 10th and 11th. I am so, so excited. Please uh, join us there. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. We are in our early bird rate period. So you'll save 300 bucks if you register right now. Don't delay. Go to talks.com. I'll be updating the agenda. We will have presentations by Abbott, Boston Scientific, Medtronic. We'll have Zimmer Biomet. We'll have ZimV. We'll have Striker. We'll have many, many more. I'm forgetting some. It's going to be a great couple of days. Please do join us on May 10th and 11th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. I want to give you a little note about next week. I'll be attending MD&M West in Anaheim. So if you see a guy who looks like me wearing a purple jacket that looks like mine, a purple sports coat, that's me. Say hi. I would love to see you. love to stop by your booth and say hello, grab a cup of coffee or whatever. Uh, But I would look forward to meeting folks out there in Anaheim. So uh, because I'll be out in MD&M West... I am not, uh, necessarily expecting to get out another device talks weekly episode next week, though I may, but if I don't, we'll have a, a great episode of another podcast coming out to you. So uh, if you don't hear from us next week, that is why, but, uh, we'll certainly do my best to, uh, to get you both the great podcast that I alluded to and an episode of Device Talks Weekly because I like doing podcasts. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Please do note that we'll be resuming Device Talks Tuesdays in a couple of weeks. So go to devicetalks.com. We have our first episodes up there. We'll be tackling many important issues, including cybersecurity. So do not delay. Go to devicetalks.com and register for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays episodes that's it I think I covered everything so let us get this podcast started alright you ready for this? ready Woo-hoo! Chris Newmarker how are you sir?
1: Tom, oh, so- Tom, how are you doing, Tom?
0: I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm over my uh, my chest cold, respiratory virus, whatever it was that Ugh. knocked me out for a couple of weeks. So uh, not quite over yet. I still have these random cough spasms that still come yes. through, but I'm uh, mm. feeling better anyway. It's the season. Like, uh, do, do you try
1: anything with that? Do you try like tea with lemon and honey or, or something? Or?
0: Lot, lots of tea with lemon, lots of cough drops. I found various cough drops that have different degrees of menthol in mm-hmm. them. So I found the high powered, I think, Fisherman's Friend that has like 10 whatevers of menthol in it versus the Fisherman's uh, Friend. The Ricola that only has like five. So I had a whole <laughs> cough drop cocktail thing going on. It was pretty... I
1: love that Fisherman's Friend. It sounds very New England. It sounds like. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. Like yeah, doesn't
0: make you feel like a man. Like, I'm, 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 friend, I'm on like, the middle of the ocean. I've got a little – right. This is what I take. like And
1: slap on my old spice. And- exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're, we're in actuality. I was just at our company meeting like, oh, God, like, please just hold it. In. I wasn't contagious. Oh, yeah. I was fast yeah, yep. contagious, but yes. I'm sure people didn't want to hear me coughing uh, during the presentation. So Yeah, so you
1: were – yeah, you – you, you soldiered on through. It was, it was very brave, man. Oh
0: yeah, I'm a true American hero. But Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we did have a good company meeting. Uh, lots very of, good. Lots of progress. Lots of excitement. So I think folks will see some exciting things moving forward. In addition to all the exciting things we're already working on.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. And there's a news release out about you know we're uh, our company is getting an investment, which that's always nice. You know, yep. uh, you know, in these uh, you know times when you hear about economic uncertainty, you know. You know, it's great to be working here at a fast-growing company that's uh, getting investors.
0: Absolutely. Yep. Mountain Gate Capital. So, like, welcome, exactly. welcome to the Device Talks family, Mountain Gate. Yes. Or I guess we're part of their family now. I don't know. We're, we'll we're all a, related.
1: We'll give them a woo-hoo. Woohoo.
0: woo-hoo. <laughs> all all right. right. Yeah. They now are emboldened by the woo and the who. All right. Here we go. I know we have a lot going on today, so we're going to just just steer right into the uh, the vaunted, yes. wonderful, highly sought after, desired, most listened to new markers, newsmakers. Yes, yes we're going to.
1: Here we go. So, number
0: five, Chris Newmarker.
1: And, you know, number uh, five on the list. We've got FDA approving uh, the fourth gen rechargeable sacral sacral neuromod tech from uh, uh This is their uh, oh, I think it's R twenty R twenty rechargeable uh, sacral. Modulation system. This is a implantable system that's you know providing neuromodulation therapy to like treat an overactive bladder or you know fecal you know incontinence. So just a uh, you know a, like a, a, a good uh, a really uh, you know good approval you know going on here in the uh, in the neuromodulation
0: space. No, oh, that's great stuff. We're, I mean, we're seeing neuro so much, so many cool applications for neuromodulation. We'll talk today with uh, Murthy Simombathla from uh, Setpoint, which isn't necessarily neuromodulation, but it's certainly neuro. But yeah. uh, between Inspire Medical with sleep apnea and and, and uh, obviously Boston Scientific and Medtronic have their own stimulation devices as well. I yeah. mean, stim is just really making its way uh, into the mainstream where people are really receptive to the power that it can bring and the help that it can provide. So very cool. Yeah, right. I mean,
1: with the implantable space, it's exciting how we, uh, you know, we already had like all this like really good pacemaker tech of, you know, you know, implanting, you know, a, you know, a, a can under the skin on somebody running leads to the heart. Well, gosh, you can run leads to, you know, parts of the nervous system as well, and you know, and you know, provide some needed therapy. So, so yeah, it's just a, it's been an exciting space, and there's going to be a lot of more neat things to follow in it.
0: Yep, and you'll hear today, Murphy will talk about uh, about uh, set points tech and how how small it is. And really, they're able to uh, implant it and, and not leave any sort of scarring. So uh, That's great. Remarkable stuff. All right. Well, yeah. congratulations to Exonics for their R20 Neurostimulator. And yep. uh, all right, let's Absolutely. roll on to, on to number four.
1: Well, you know, number two on the list, we've got... Number uh, four. It, number oh, yes. Number four on the list. All right. I was getting ahead of myself. Number four <laughs> on the list, we've got... Invicare uh, starting a uh, you know financial restructuring. They have uh, two subsidiaries uh filing uh, chapter 11 uh you know Invicare the they're based in Ohio. They make wheelchairs, medical bear- beds, uh, wound care products. Um, they've they've already had a lot of uh changes going on at the company including uh you know last year they uh, uh, they they swap ceos um but you know this is this is their next step to you know you know try to do like basically a corporate turnaround over there and mm-hmm. um you know they've got a restructuring support agreement that where they're you know looking to uh you know to reduce uh you know funded debt by about 240 million dollars so they're you know, looking to get that you know the, the, the millions of debt off of them you know got two u.s based subsidiaries uh, commencing chapter 11 cases
0: this is really kind of an interesting tale of two med techs because our number one item is going to speak to companies that are not having difficulties. Um, and we'll get into those later, but there certainly is a population to keep it real. Uh, there certainly are some companies out there that have had some difficulties. I mean, Johnson and Johnson had a disappointing quarter. Baxter is going through a reorganization, I think largely, or at least read that it's, you know, sort of a response to the, to Rom acquisition. So, um, again, people are moving forward. Uh, but, uh, but it's not smooth smooth sailing for everybody.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, these aren't like, like uh totally totally happy times for Pernattech for here. I mean, you know, we yeah, these are uncertain times. You know, we've had a lot of inflation, supply chain difficulties, um, you know, we'll uh, you know, all this, you know, interest, you know, all the Fed interest rate raising, will uh, you see what, you know, like how much of a slowdown that's going to have on the uh the economy this year, but um, yeah, so this is kind of like uh, one of the more one of the more you know negative stories in the in the med tech space right now in this environment, but uh, you know here's here's to hoping they can you know get this you know turned around over at Embarcure.
0: Absolutely. All right, Chris Newmarker, let's roll on to number three on the Markers News. Oh yeah, there's more tough oh, news. Oh, speaking of yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> speaking of tough news, um, we've got um, Philips. Um, you know, they already announced that they were going to be uh, slashing four thousand jobs. Uh, now they're going to be uh, cutting another. Six thousand um this is gonna be representing wow. uh thirteen percent of Phillips's global workforce is uh, gonna be uh let go by twenty twenty five
0: yeah so says um, half the cuts will take place this year and the remainder will be done by twenty twenty five that is a mm-hmm. that's that a long a, a long slow roll downhill
1: yeah and uh they've been um yeah they they have been you know going through just a a terrible terrible recall over there. I mean, involving millions of CPAPs and respiratory devices with, you know, sound, you know, potential sound abatement foam degradation you know, you know, tens of thousands reports of problems to the FDA, including uh reports of deaths, um, you know, and and you know, and then, you know, not not exactly a clear, you know, you know, still still an open question of what exactly uh you know, Philips uh, is is going to you know be able to re-enter the the respiratory devices market from from all of this. Um, mm-hmm. But you know they've been they've been you know working through it, and uh, you know they also have consent to decree talks with uh, the the U.S. Justice Department, and, and you know they're uh, you know trying to work out a plan with uh, FDA as well. Um, so so just a lot of challenges they're just trying to work through over there. And uh, I, I thought it was you know interesting. Their their CEO Roy Jacobs, who you know got wrote it up took over last year was just you know saying like this these cuts are just part of the realism of what they're going through um mm-hmm. you know so so you know here's uh you know here, here's hoping they can work through all this soon and uh you know and you know move, move past this
0: now, at least in this case i mean we could we can obviously look at larger uh holistic reasons of why there may be some um some some potential layoffs in the medtech industry. I mean, we've sure. talked about the macroeconomic conditions, but this is certainly one that's tied most closely to the the recall. So it is a singular yeah. event that that's driving this this sad story for Philips. But uh,
1: yeah, I mean, we've been reporting on some layoffs, but this is this is definitely like yeah, I mean, this is something you can point to. Like it's it's you know this is this an event that's happening at Philips. You know that they they just have a um, just a real, a really serious recall that they're that that's you know that they're working through.
0: Okay, well, and uh, I do want to direct people to your the timeline that you put together about the whole Phillips recall. Um, again, you did an excellent job, sort of bringing all of the the different uh, events together and putting them in a, in an easy to understand chronological order. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, go, go to, go to mass device and look up how Phillips significant respiratory devices recall unfolded. And,
0: you know, we've just been
1: doing so much reporting on this since, you know, the recall started in 2021. Um, you know, it's just a good, good way just to go through and just see exactly how all this has unfolded with it.
0: Absolutely. All right. Let's roll into number two. I didn't realize I was stepping on a newsmaker, but, uh, what's what's number two in the newsmakers chris newmarker
1: well number two on the list um you know we've got uh johnson and johnson was a uh, dealt a step back, a setback uh, legally on uh their uh their their maneuvers to do a uh a Texas two-step. Have you heard of a Texas uh, two-step? Tom? I had
0: not. No, tell us, Chris Newmaker.
1: Um, th- this is like a uh, a complex legal procedure that's been um, that more companies have been embracing in recent years, and it involves uh, you know you be- if you have like something that's like got a ton of liability that you're looking at huge potentially huge lawsuit payoffs over. You create an LLC, move all the liability over that LLC, and then the LLC. Uh, files for bankruptcy and, uh, in Johnson and Johnson's case, they were, you know, moving over liability for these like huge, the, all these, you know, lawsuits involved involving uh, their uh, talk-based uh baby baby powder, you know, potentially causing cancer. Um um, you know, and uh, you know, this uh this went all the way uh, to the US uh you know Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit um closely watched case in corporate America and the uh, Third Circuit said uh the they, uh Thomas Ambro, the circuit judge wrote in his ruling that only those facing financial distress can call on bankruptcy's tools to do so. And uh You know, and and he, you know, pointed to the uh, funding that J and J, you know, put in there. I mean, J and J was saying that you know they formed this LLC in order to, um, you know, like kind of you know get these cases resolved quickly, and you know they put in the the amount of money they thought was fair for the people in these lawsuits, and you know, and uh, the uh, the judge said here that uh, that while you know this uh, this LLC faced a substantial future talk liability, its funding backstop plainly mitigates any financial distress foreseen on its petition dates. So uh, Johnson Johnson's appealing this. Um, its stock was down on the day uh, that the, the ruling came out. And, you know, also 3M, stock was down because they've been trying a similar uh strategy with the uh you know lawsuits they've been facing over uh you know uh earplugs uh, sold to the to the US mm-hmm. military. So, you know, so this this calls into question uh you know three M strategy with this uh, as well, which it'll it'll be interesting as well because um, you know, the this planned spinoff of three M's healthcare business was kind of in some way involved with this. You know, I've I've you know read kind of the the argument that spinning off the health care business would Make three M, you know. It actually three the healthcare business is lucrative enough that you know they didn't want that you know their finances to look that great while they were trying to do this Texas two step. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see you know whether this affects you know whether the healthcare spinoff uh, you know moves forward. But um, you know there's a chance this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. It could be a major major case in corporate America. But All right, Tom, Chris. I got some positive news to follow, to finish this up, though. So
0: yeah, let's go um, with the big number one, Chris. Th- we we're go. walking number, on sunshine, baby. That's
1: right. Yeah, like like we're walking on sun. So you know, <laughs> number number one on the list. You know, go to Mass Device. I, I I have a story that I just posted up here on a on a Thursday afternoon. Five reasons you should feel good about med tech companies in twenty twenty three, and you know, and what what this is about is there's actually I point out five earnings reports. From this week, that were you know that were you know pretty positive. I mean, they, you know these companies are you know still reporting the macroeconomic headwinds. They're still working through supply chain challenges, but um, they're actually seeing the good good momentum you know going into twenty twenty three. And you know, in, in a number of cases they're raising guidance. You know, they're they're beating the street. Um, you know, and you know, it was it was great to see a number of like, you know, significant names in the industry this week. Uh, you know, I having having some good earnings reports. I mean, you know, I mean, they're and they're, you know, there's some real you know, they're reporting momentum and sales going into the year and you know, there's some real uh you know, real, real optimism, actually, about 2023. So, it's not it's not all doom and gloom, you know, we're, uh, you know, the industry might still show its economic resiliency yet. So, you know, uh, so the companies on the list, we were, you know, it's Stryker, Hologic, BD, Edwards Life Sciences, and Boston Scientific, and uh, you know, and, and more coming in. And like I, uh, you know, saw Siemens Health and had a report out, you know, reporting, uh, you know,
0: seeing some sales growth. So, that's good. You know, good. we're... I'd like to add a sixth can I add a sixth? Yeah, go for it. You, Chris Newmarker, you're a reason we should feel good about the med tech industry.
1: Thanks, Tom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, good stuff. Good good overview of uh of the earnings. I know it's a busy week for you guys, uh, for you folks at uh at Mass Device. Uh how is the general yeah. tone of of the calls you the many, many calls you sat in? I mean, this is a representative of that that there is a lot of good news, but any, any other takeaways or surprises?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I think the big surprise—I mean, not a surprise, but just like a some welcome news was that yeah, there's definitely some, you know, some 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 real uh real optimism among you know some of the major CEOs in the industry and you know so they're you know it's it's good to see like we aren't yeah I mean sure you have something like the Philips layoffs but you know like overall like there's some you know you're not really seeing you know, you know layoffs companies are like hey we're gonna we're going to work hard. We're going to innovate through whatever is going to happen this year. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to grow this industry. We're going to grow the space. So that's, uh, that's a really good feeling. It feels good to be, uh, you know, part of an industry here that's, you know, got to, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're facing the
0: year with a positive attitude. Fantastic. All right, Chris Newmarker. Uh, great, uh, great list of Newmarker's newsmakers this week. Hey, you know, I'll try to deliver every week, Tom. <laughs> Man, you do. Well, Murthy Samhambatla, welcome to the podcast.
2: Pleasure to join you.
0: It's excellent to uh, have an opportunity to explore the the Setpoint uh, story, Setpoint Medical. It's one of those more fascinating medtech companies, I think, that just has a uh, well, we'll get into it, where you're headed, but it's very excited. I watched the uh, video by Kevin Tracy, your your founder. I did a TED Med a couple of years ago and posted that on LinkedIn because it's just an extraordinary story. But before we get into the set point story, Murthy, I always love to learn how folks find their way into the medical device industry. So, uh what was the initial uh the initial thing that drew you to Medtech?
2: Well, I was uh, in the Bay Area with a uh, an electronics and aerospace company called Raychem up in Menlo Park. And I think you just had the nascent beginnings of the med tech industry in the Bay area back then. And one of the people I worked for at Raychem left and joined Guidant. Okay. And he told me that developing this thing called a stent going to revolutionize cardiology and they need uh, engineers with your background you know, why didn't you apply They have a job fair at the Santa Clara Convention Center? So I went there. And I <laughs> that. and that's how I became part of the medtech industry.
0: Really interesting. What was it? Was it the appeal, just uh, a cool job, or did you see something more uh, with the opportunity to create a medical device?
2: Well, when I interviewed with Gaiden, it, it was an interesting interview. They they took me down and showed me how the products performed in models of the coronary arteries, and I found that extremely uh, fascinating. And they told lots of stories about patients who had benefited. And to me, it just seemed uh, a lot more exciting to have a direct impact on patients than, say, uh, you know, develop wiring and harnesses for the electronics industry. Not that that's not important, but this had a, a really special appeal. So I think Guidant did a great job of explaining the the value and benefit of what they do during the interview process. And I was hooked and never looked back after that.
0: I often ask about the the guidance experience because everyone speaks so glowingly of it. It sounds like a very unique culture. What was it about that culture that really connected with you?
2: There are a few things that did really well. There was a, a tremendous amount of focus on the patients. And that connectivity was felt at every level of the organization down to the operators. So the entire organization was very aligned on why it existed and why it did what it did. And the company also was excellent at empowering people to do the jobs effectively. There was a general direction. There were objectives. But within that framework, there's a lot of freedom for engineers and teams to uh, to explore the best solutions. And the company had outstanding teamwork. Very early in the process, I realized how well the company ran its projects, how will it brought all the functions together to have a kind of a unified approach from start to finish for projects. So for a new engineer to me, someone new to MedTech, that is absolutely invaluable because you learn aspects of all functions very quickly. You're not an isolated silo, So they did uh, all of those things really, really well.
0: I'd love to understand how you transitioned from engineer to executive. I'm looking at your background at Guidant. You were manager of Ventures from 2000 to 2002. Then you were director of process and product development, which seems more in line with engineering. And then vice president, general manager of drug-eluting stents at Abbott. Guidant, when Guidant was acquired, that portion of Guidant was acquired by Abbott. When did you realize you wanted to do more than... uh You 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 wanted your role to be beyond just the designing of the devices, but in the creation and the management of the people who are making the devices. And what was that transition like? Was it difficult? Did did you have to learn new ways to communicate or new skill sets, or or what was that process like?
2: Yeah, you know, I didn't think a lot about it back then. You know, as the opportunities presented themselves, in many ways, I grew into my roles through the evolution of our drug-eluting stent program. (laughs)
1: So
2: early on, I was. Involved in working with the teams that did the formulation, and then we had to develop the processes, and then we had to work with the manufacturing and quality teams to scale them up, and then we had to get across the finish line with the FDA. So it is kind of a unique experience. It really was. I, I, I grew through that program. Now I told you that guidance was extremely patient. Focus, but also very physician-focused. We spent a lot of time with physicians at every level. And as I grew through the organization, increasingly, I was spending, you know, I'd say at least a quarter of my time with physicians. And I really enjoyed that experience. And as we got the product across the finish line, you know, we were part of Abbott then. I talked to then uh, president of the division, and I said, look, I, I want to do something that's entirely customer facing for a while, because I didn't feel like you could have one foot in the business unit and one facing the customer and completely immerse yourself and learn the commercial aspects of the business effectively that way. Hmm. So I asked for that and I was very fortunate, a position opened up in Australia and I went there to run commercial operations for the vascular business for Australia and New Zealand. And that is an incredible experience, both, you know, in terms of having fun and in terms of learning.
0: Interesting. Well, two things. I want to get into that experience next, but I just wanted to sort of step back into the whole drug eluding stent time. And it was a a really, I think, heady, unusual time in medtech, at least it was for me. I just started covering industry then, so maybe I I got caught up in it. But it was almost a competitive sort of space race element to drug eluding stents. Not something that I think I've really experienced since. Do you see it that way as well? Was it was it an u- unusual time within Medtech, or have you found similar energies and experience again?
2: That was quite unique because the industry was still growing and evolving, and bare metal stents had made significant inroads. And you know, and then back then had dominant market share leadership of bare, bare metal stents, and. Johnson & Johnson came up with a cipher stent, and that completely changed the equation. So the race was on to develop a a drug-eluting stent. And back then, there was a concern with the trade-off between safety and efficacy with a drug-eluting stent. There was concern with thrombosis induced by uh, the drug in the vasculature. So the race was on. How do you make a device that's highly deliverable, that can get you to the lesion, effectively, without too much manipulation, but one that had great long-term outcomes, both in terms of efficacy and safety. So obviously, J&J was the first when the race was on. You know, Boston Scientific, Guidant, Medtronic, all began working on the programs. You know, Guidant had multiple programs, and I was on the troubleshooting teams of one of the programs, and that's how I got introduced to uh, the DES world at Guidant. But we all felt that you know, while we we weren't necessarily first, there was an opportunity to leapfrog with a coating that had a great safety profile with a stand that was highly deliverable. That's kind of what motivated everyone. And for for device companies, the size of the opportunity was quite large, unlike what uh, existed before. So in purely commercial terms and from the standpoint of driving profitability it was very attractive and that's what really drove that uh, that race
0: interesting times now those were those must have been exciting to be part of all that let's focus now on your move to australia new zealand H- had you been there before had you spent time in that culture before or was it completely different for you
2: no it was completely different as a matter of fact uh, you know they asked me where i wanted to do commercial and i i guess i wasn't thinking i said how about australia <laughs> <laughs> But in the back of my mind, I was thinking the business culture is similar to the United States. Uh, The language is similar. (laughs) It's not exactly the same. Not exactly. But it's, uh, it's similar. And I didn't want to change too many variables. I wanted to focus on commercial operations while I kept some of those other variables fixed. That is probably what was in the back of my mind. And as luck would have it, a couple of months later, the position opened up and, you know, be careful what you ask for. I went
0: off to Australia, <laughs> and uh, so you were there for uh, for three years. Looking at your uh, profile, you were an engineer. You wanted to learn to be more forward facing, speaking to the customers. What was that transition like? And what advice do you give to younger engineers about acquiring that skill to speak directly to the customer? And and I'd also like to understand what the value of serving in a market other than the U.S. What that really meant for you. But first, changing your perspective as an engineer, what was that like?
2: Well. Like I told you, I was already spending a lot of my time with customers. So the okay. first piece of advice I give engineers is to spend a lot of time with physicians. There's a there's a certain temptation sometimes to do the initial scoping with physicians and then kind of lock yourself in a room and work on your stuff. But I truly enjoyed the physician interaction for a, for a variety of reasons. You learn what pressures they're facing. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what challenges they're facing you learn about the competitive environment better than sitting in your office. And you learn, and they'll tell you what's working well with your product, what needs improvement. So there's a lot that you learn, and I enjoyed that. So if you're spending a lot of time with customers already, the next question to ask is, do I really love that? And not everybody necessarily loves it more than, say, the R&D part. I truly enjoyed it. And I found that, very energizing i'd come back really energized at work every time i had those interactions and i said you know what and but then i also realized that having those interactions with physicians as an r and d engineer was not the same as closing a sale <laughs> <laughs> which is why i felt that i truly had to cross the chasm and jump all in into learning that skill set so my advice is spend a lot of time with customers even as you, even when you're an engineer and see if you like it
0: And and the value in serving outside the U.S., what does that bring to a person?
2: Well, there's a lot of value. You know, Australia was part of our uh, Asia-Pacific region. So you're part of that Asia-Pacific group. So you learn a lot about countries across Asia and the particular challenges, whether it's China, Korea, Japan, Thailand, India, each one is entirely different with an entirely different set of challenges in terms of how devices are paid for the competitive environment, regulations, everything's different. So you learn a lot about the region, which gives you a global perspective. But just by virtue of being in Australia, obviously you hone your skills in terms of working with your team. You obviously have a team that's already experienced in commercial operations. So you've got to check your ego at the door and learn from them. That's kind of the first thing you do is get out, follow them, spend a lot of time on the road, visit a lot of hospitals and accounts, absorb and learn. Then you start to formulate your views in terms of what's missing, what could we do better? How do we take market share? There are constraints in terms of reimbursement and contracts and uh, tenders in places like Australia where you know you better win the tender or you're out of the state. Wow. So So there's a lot of those types of dynamics that are somewhat different than the US, that you have to learn. And the best place to learn is from your team and let them teach you. Give them the opportunity to teach you. They're happy to do that. And then you, you kind of develop your own viewpoints over time.
0: Fascinating. It's an area of career development, which I've been interested in sort of understanding better. So thank you for that. I think when you and I first connected, you were you were president at uh, Abbott Medical Optics. How did that opportunity? come about. And if you really think about it, that's probably one of the more forward-facing specialties there is when it comes to interaction with with physicians. I don't know of one where the bond between device developer and physician is is so close.
2: You know, with my experience in Australia, you know, I I put all the pieces together of our, you know, understanding R&D, understanding quality, understanding regulatory clinical trials, being exposed to manufacturing scale-up, and so getting that commercial experience was kind of the last piece of the puzzle to running an integrated business, which was always my interest, was to run an integrated business. So after Australia, I got a call to come back to the US to run a diagnostics business. This was a business that Abbott had acquired, a startup company that Abbott acquired in infectious diseases that has called back to run and it is integrated. It is small, but it had all the pieces that I was responsible for, everything from R&D to the assembly of the equipment to commercializing it. We were doing some sales in Europe back then. I didn't do that for long. I did that for about a year, year and a half. And then I got another call telling me that the head of the division in uh, Southern California, the AMO business, was retiring and would I be interested in running that business. And it is a large business, over a billion dollars in revenue. I was quite excited I was I'd never done ophthalmology before so the other thing you'll see in my career is I started in cardiology then I did diagnostics then ophthalmology and later I did medical aesthetics and now I'm in immunology so it's uh spanned many different fields of medicine absolutely so ophthalmology seemed really exciting to me a very innovative field and there was a component, both of reimbursed medicine and self-pay medicine that I found very intriguing at the time. So I met the head of the division, Jim Mazo, at that time, and he has an infectious energy. And, uh, and, he, <laughs> he, does. and, and he excited me even more about the business. And I didn't hesitate to say yes. And we moved the family to uh, to Orange County for me to run that business.
0: Excellent. How did that play out for you? You were there for three years.
2: Yeah, I think it was a, it was an amazing experience, and I was very fortunate uh, at Abbott to have all those opportunities. I spent about six months transitioning with Jim Mason, which is helpful because ophthalmology is uh, is based on very deep, long lasting relationships. I was kind of the odd man out. If you look at ophthalmology in general, you know it's people who have dedicated their entire careers to ophthalmology. You don't find people moving in and out of ophthalmology. No, you're right. So I traveled a lot with Jim. Uh, meeting key physicians, understanding the business, understanding what pressures ophthalmologists face, and kind of internalizing that. And then during the transition, you know, we both ran the business and then I took over from Jim. So it was a very nice way to orient yourself to the business. And in the process, just as importantly, I got to know a team. It is a fairly large business with operations, you know, in Asia and Europe, in North and South America, we were everywhere. We had multiple manufacturing plants. So it is just as important for me to acquaint myself with our teams across the world to get to know them. And, you know, I always tell people the best way to learn a business is to spend time with the customers and spend time with your teams, because in every large organization, there's a lot of institutional knowledge. And you've got to recognize who those people are and kind of lean on them to help you learn the business and become proficient.
0: Excellent. Well, that's, that's a great overview of, of, of your career. Let's let's talk about Setpoint. How did you come to, you, you joined the company in 2008 as CEO. It had been around for a time. I remember talking to earlier CEOs about the opportunity in this space, and it's really fascinating, but how did the opportunity to be CEO become known to you, and what did you find appealing about the company?
2: Well, I joined in 2018.
0: I said 2008, right. I'm sorry, 2018. I Correct. screwed everybody up. 2018.
2: Yeah, I joined in 2018. The way I learned about the company is that the board had uh, retained the services of a recruiter to look for a CEO. And it's interesting, they knew someone who suggested that I might be a great candidate. And they reached out to me. And at first, I didn't take it seriously. It just seemed like an outrageous idea hmm. to stimulate the nerves, to modulate the immune system. And I just kind of parked it in the back of my head. But this recruiter was pretty persistent. Sent me a lot of articles, and said, "You know, why don't you read these before you make up your mind?" And then they arranged for me to talk to the chief medical officer. You know, back then, I guess it was a confidential search, so they told him I was a potential investor.
0: Oh, really interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so I spoke to the chief medical officer. I I spoke to the principal investigator of uh, of a trial at that time, and, and as I started diving deeper and deeper. It quickly became aware that the company was founded on the basis of some very strong science. The mechanism of action was extremely well-established. The company had done really good preclinical research, but also really good early clinical research. They had looked at patients through multiple lenses in their early small trials, not just your standard measures of disease, but they looked at patients with objective uh, imaging evidence to look for impact on uh, tissue damage. They looked at biomarkers for objective evidence that you were, in fact, down-regulating inflammation. So the quality of that work drew me to the company, but also the team appeared to be uh, relatively strong at the company. The company had an excellent investor base very in deep. with an excellent board of directors. So, and it was a huge unmet need. So for me, that is kind of the most important factor. Was it a big unmet need? And did the company have the fundamentals to address those?
0: Well, take a moment and explain the technology to me as you would someone you're you're explaining what uh, what Setpoint has, has set out to do.
2: The company was founded on a mechanism of action discovered by Kevin Tracy, a neurosurgeon who currently heads up the Feinstein Institute in Long Island, New York. And what Kevin discovered about 20 years ago or so is that the vagus nerve regulates the amount of inflammation in the body. Now, the vagus nerve is like the transatlantic cable of the body. It's about 100,000 nerve fibers, some of which take inflammation from the organs to the brain, and some of the fibers take commands from the brain to the organs. So what Kevin discovered is that the vagus nerve surveils the body for inflammation, and it senses inflammation, excessive inflammation, and it rings an alarm bell in the brain. And the brain then reflexively sends a signal down the vagus nerve to tamp down the inflammation. Now, I must mention that not all inflammation is bad. If you break a bone, you get inflamed. And as you heal, the inflammation subsides, leading to restoration of health. If you get infected, the inflammation increases, but then it resolves over time. And this is all controlled by this feedback mechanism involving the vagus nerve. Now, in patients with autoimmune disease, the challenge is chronic elevated levels of inflammation, which are characterized by pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as tumor necrosis factor, TNF, and other cytokines attacking the tissue in your body. So in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, these cytokines attack your joints. In the case of Crohn's disease, it could be your intestine or your colon. In the case of multiple sclerosis, it can be the myelin sheath on the nerve fiber. So they're all characterized by chronic inflammation causing tissue damage. Now, what Kevin discovered additionally, and this is the interesting part, the really interesting part, is that by stimulating the vagus nerve, you could recapitulate the commands of the brain sense to tamp down the inflammation. What happens then is that you reprogram the cells that release these pro-inflammatory cytokines to be quiescent. As a matter of fact, a single 60-second stimulation of the vagus nerve can render these cells quiescent for up to two two weeks. So it's a very low-energy process because it's an innate mechanism. It's a highly evolved innate mechanism. So it cannot be a high-energy process. So the company was founded on that premise, but there's no evidence this worked in humans. A lot of work had been done in animals, there was no evidence at that time that this would actually work in humans. And the company was founded to really prove the concept and then develop a device and a therapy eventually.
0: So quiescent, meaning that you're basically tamping down the inflammation process? They won't be producing the cytokines that,
2: yeah, that so initiate the inflammation? Yeah, so it's a quiescent, the, the cells go from being angry okay, and provoked and producing all of these pro-inflammatory cytokines to reducing the amount of cytokines they produce. Now, let's take... Tumor necrosis factor, TNF as an example. TNF at elevated levels is bad because it can damage tissue, but you also need TNF to fight infections. So it's a balancing act. So from an evolutionary perspective, this mechanism doesn't completely turn off TNF. It down-regulates the ability of these cells to produce these cytokines by about 30 to 70%. Wow. That's how you can have your cake and eat it too. You can reduce inflammation without causing immunosuppression. And, and this is uh, what distinguishes our approach from drug approaches, which essentially neutralize cytokines like TNF.
0: So what is the technology used to interrupt the signal and to create this effect? Is it a, a standard neuromodulation device or is it something that's been created specifically to perform this function? How, how unique is, uh, is the stimulator that you're using?
2: It's a rather unique stimulator. And what allowed us to design this unique miniaturized stimulator is the extremely low level of energy required for the stimulation. Like I said, one minute a day. Mm -hmm. Now, That's amazing. That's right. (laughs) So early on, we wanted to develop a device that would be suitable not only as a kind of a last line therapy, but something that with evidence would be suitable earlier in the patient's journey as a second line or even a frontline therapy. So for a device to be accepted as a frontline or a second line therapy, you know, it can't be too bulky. We didn't want a device that was implanted in the chest with a lead going up to your vagus nerve. So we developed this really tiny device the size of a large multivitamin that sits directly in the vagus nerve with no lead wires.
0: It's amazing that you say that because I was looking at the website. I'm like, I was trying to say, how will I describe that? It looks like it's a large multivitamin, but maybe it's a little too big for that. But that's perfect. It's a perfect description. Continue. I apologize.
2: This is about that size. It sits directly on the vagus nerve. You know, there's no lead wires. The leads are integrated on the device. It sits directly on the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is about three to five centimeters deep. So the procedure is typically done by neurosurgeons who do similar procedures for drug refractory epilepsy or ENT surgeons. So they're quite familiar with how to access the vagus nerve. And because the vagus nerve is so deep, this tiny device you know, doesn't bulge out. The patient cannot feel it. So for all practical purposes, it's kind of in the background, implanted in the neck on the vagus nerve. The device has all of the electronics necessary for it to perform autonomously. It has a telemetry coil. It has a rechargeable oh. battery. And the patient, after the surgery, are sent home with a neck charger a wireless charger that they wear around the neck, and they need to wear it for just five to 10 minutes once a week, say, over a Sunday morning coffee to establish a ritual, and that tops up the charge in the device. So we want to make it really simple for patients. And, That's uh, Yeah, and it's a relatively straightforward uh, device to use. The device gives the patient feedback by beeping and through an LED you know, when the uh, implant is charged. The physician's office is given an iPad. Instead of having a programmer, it's a simple iPad. We lock down all the pulse parameters except the current, which is titrated for every patient up to their upper comfort level. So it's an outpatient procedure, about an hour, done under general anesthesia. And the access to the vagus nerve is through a relatively small incision made in the crease of the neck to ensure that you know, the scar is hidden in the crease the procedure. So that's the procedure and the device. There's no scar in the chest because there's no can, no large can with a battery that goes in the chest. So this is the device that we are evaluating in our current uh, pivotal trial for rheumatoid arthritis.
0: You currently have, I'm looking at uh, from your website, so you're in pivotal stage for rheumatoid arthritis. You also have a trial, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have a trial for psoriatic arthritis? And trials going on for Crohn's, colitis, and multiple sclerosis as well?
2: Well, uh, not exactly. We have a trial that's currently running. This is a pivotal trial to support a PMA submission for rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. We have run feasibility studies.
0: Oh, yes. Okay.
2: Another indication. So we run a feasibility study in Crohn's disease. And what you're looking at on the website is the pipeline. So the indications that we'd like to advance in the future include psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's disease ulcerative colitis, potentially multiple sclerosis. Okay. So rheumatoid arthritis is a lead indication, and that's what we're currently focused on, at least in the clinic.
0: So explain to me, if you could, someone who's suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, when would they become eligible for this device, or when would they require this device, and what might a successful outcome feel like to that person? Uh, I imagine it's a relief of pain, but what else does that look like?
2: Yeah, so the important thing about rheumatoid arthritis is that it's not sufficient to reduce pain. Okay. What you really want to do is to reduce the underlying inflammation that causes tissue damage. So it's not sufficient, it's necessary, but not sufficient to control pain. Mm -hmm. So you've got to address the disease at its root, which is uh, tamped down on inflammation. So where do we fit? If you look at the journey of patients with rheumatoid arthritis in the United States is about 1.6 million patients with rheumatoid arthritis. When they're diagnosed, they're initially put on generic medications like methotrexate, like low-dose methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and other generic drugs. And about a quarter of the patients will respond adequately to these drugs or be tolerant to these drugs. Some patients are just not tolerant to these drugs. So the vast majority of patients over time will switch over to the class of drugs known as biological drugs. And this is where the big spend in the healthcare system is. These drugs can list for, you know, $60,000 a year or more. Wow! So typically patients, at least in the United States, are put on a TNF inhibitor. I spoke about tumor necrosis factor. So these are drugs that neutralize tumor necrosis factor. And some patients will respond well, others won't. There are patients who will initially respond well, but lose efficacy over time because patients can develop antibodies to these drugs. Or other pathways may become more dominant over time. So typically, about half the patients have prescribed any given drug or off the drug within two years, and patients get cycled to a different drug. Okay. So typically, it'll be a second TNF inhibitor. And if the patients are not responsive to that, they'll get cycled to yet another biological drug with yet another different mechanism of action, not a TNF inhibitor, but a different mechanism of action. And if that doesn't work, patients may get put on a newer class of oral drugs called janus kinase inhibitors okay so there's a there's a sequencing of uh, of drugs that happens with patients now wh- where do we fit in the pivotal trial is enrolling patients who have had an incomplete response to or are intolerant to at least one biological drug so they're eligible after patients have been exposed to the first biological drug and, you know, have not had an adequate response or are intolerant. So it's uh, it's fairly early in their journey. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's not something that's being evaluated in patients who have failed everything. Mm-hmm. So it's at least one biological drug.
0: And how has the, the device uh, performed in the trials thus far?
2: Well, we'll find out when we get the full readout of the pivotal trial, you know, in about uh, a year or so. So in 2024, uh, we'll get the readout from the pivotal trial. But in our early trials, in our feasibility studies, uh, we had uh, very positive responses. Uh, you look at patients through you know, the standard clinical lens of the registration endpoints that are necessary uh, to get approval in the United States. And we did quite well on those measures in the early trials. So we'll find out. Uh, how our patients did in this uh, randomized trial uh, in 2024.
0: And how how large have the trials been?
2: It's a 250-patient study. Mm-hmm. Randomized. It's a double-blind, randomized, sham-controlled study. Okay. So, so all the patients uh, in the study are implanted with the device. Half the patients have the devices turned on for the first 12 weeks, and the other half don't. And you read out the primary endpoint, which is a standard measure. It's a composite measure of tender joints, swollen joints, the patient's perception of pain, and so on. You read that out at 12 weeks, and you're going to demonstrate that the treatment arm does better than the sham arm. So it's a relatively quick readout at 12 weeks. And at 12 weeks, patients are given the option, if they're in the sham arm, to have the devices turned on. So you know, everybody then, you know, has the opportunity to have the devices turned on after 12 weeks.
0: So is all the testing really done then in that first 12 weeks, all the comparison proving the control versus the, yeah. the treatment?
2: The primary endpoint is, yeah. uh, is right out of 12 weeks, but obviously we, we gather long-term data, both uh, efficacy and safety data. Patients, you know, will be in the study for multiple years as we gather this data. But the idea is, to read out the primary endpoint, and to use that as the basis for the PMA submission.
0: But you don't have the data from those first 12 weeks yet that, that it all comes at once?
2: No, it rolls in as patients enroll in the study. Oh,
0: that's true. No, everyone's not enrolled at the same time. That's, that's a good
2: one. Because, because the study is blinded, we don't yeah. get to see the data until yeah. all the patients are enrolled and have their follow-up.
0: Let's just talk about uh, your recent news. You, you announced you had a, an $80 million financing co-led by Norwest Venture Partners and Viking Global Investors. What is this capital going to enable you to do? And, and what are the next couple of years look like for Setpoint?
2: Well, the primary focus in the next couple of years is firstly to complete enrollment in the pivotal trial. And then in parallel, complete all of the other work necessary to file a PMA in terms of getting your quality system ready your validations your manufacturing processes and systems all of that has to come together because a pma submission is more than just the clinical data so all of that has to be brought together to file the pma so that's the immediate focus and priority of the company as we get past the pma submission the company you know then needs to be focused on getting ready for commercialization so a focus on reimbursement and a focus on educating rheumatologists about this therapeutic approach, Mm -hmm. and then getting ready by hiring the early commercial team so we're ready to commercialize as soon as we're approved. Now, even as they're doing that, what we've developed is truly a platform technology. We believe the same device and the same location of implantation can be used to treat patients with rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, including Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and potentially multiple sclerosis. So there's a, there's a whole pipeline waiting to be developed. And we get calls and emails from patients with all of these conditions imploring us to accelerate the development of these programs. But we're a startup. And, you know, there's only so many things we can do at once. Right. But with this financing, you know, one of the opportunities we have after we read out the pivotal trial for rheumatoid arthritis is to initiate a trial in a second indication, and then get ready, you know, for perhaps a financing in the public markets to fully fund the company for commercialization. So with this financing that we just did, we raised enough capital to complete the trial, do the PMA submission, and fund the company through early commercialization. So it's a pretty significant financing for the company. And obviously, as one scales beyond that, you're going to look at options such as accessing the public markets. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Well, that must be something to be contacted by patients looking for help. Final question. We talked earlier on about the DES experience, how it was kind of a space race and a, and a lot of movement by several players in a space. I'm getting a feeling that bioelectronic medicine is bubbling as well. Do you get that sense broadly that this space is going to be making a lot of great gains over the next couple of years and fulfilling hopefully some of the uh, some of the potential?
2: Well, you know, bioelectronic medicine doesn't have a well-established definition. Mm -hmm. On the one extreme, it can be used to describe any device with a battery in electronics.
0: Fair enough.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the way we think about what we're doing, and I think we're the first, but there'll be others, is tapping into innate neural circuits to regulate molecular pathways to benefit patients. So today, you modulate these pathways with chemical entities. I think one of the things you'll see grow in the future is tapping into these innate neural circuits to regulate the same molecular pathways, but using electricity instead of using chemical entities. And we have tapped into one such neural circuit. There's many others waiting to be discovered. So if you think about what we're doing in those terms, using electricity to modulate molecular pathways through well-established mechanisms... We're at the forefront, but I believe you will see a lot of activity in this space in the coming years for multiple disease states.
0: Excellent. Well, it's an exciting time, and it's great to see uh, you making the progress you're making at Setpoint, Worthy. Thanks for sharing your story and taking some time today.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: All right, Chris, that's a wrap. Let's let's spit it out. Where can folks find you on social media? Hey, best place to find me is LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. (laughs) find me there as well tom salemi uh like salem with an i at the end as my clever wife uh, figured out how to tell people how to spell (laughs) our name never occurred to me but so s-a-l-e-m-i uh and what do we want folks to do chris you gotta like follow
1: subscribe
0: absolutely subscribe to this device talks podcast network so you'll get future episodes of device talks weekly intuitive talks and striker talks and a very close to announcing uh, a new podcast. We're uh, we're beginning to schedule it. We're working on graphics, uh, finding music, uh, booking talent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh, so uh, stay tuned. We'll have it. Uh, we'll we'll announce it. Come on, Tom, it. Tom. Tell me what is it? Whisper just TV. a couple hey, of weeks. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> i was having the. i was thinking back to christmas story yeah. so poisoning <laughs> oh ralphie anyway all right no. uh yes please do <laughs> like follow and subscribe please do share this episode of the device talks weekly podcast on those social media channels and connect with chris and i on there uh so we can be part of your med uh conversations and of course don't forget Device Talks Boston is happening May 10th and 11th in Boston. Registration is open. Early bird rate is in play. You'll save a lot of dough if you register now. I think it's 300 bucks. And you have to do so soon. So go to device to find out more about our agenda there. We'll be updating the agenda. Happy to have uh, Mike Mahoney of Boston Scientific there. Happy to have Tom Poland of uh, BD there. We'll have Robert Cohen of Stryker, Anna's Dwah from Moon Surgical, and many, many more. So oh, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. So, folks, I'll be t-
1: there. You I'll will be there. Be there. So, Chris and I will yes. be
0: there on stage and off. Uh, so uh, please do join us. And uh, also Device Talks Tuesdays will be happening in a couple of weeks. We've got a, a lineup of our first three or four episodes up on devicetalks.com. So check that out as well. Our first topic will be cybersecurity brought to you by uh, BIOOT. So uh, please uh, make sure you uh, you check that out. Go to devicetalks.com for all this essential information. All right, Chris Newmarker, that's a wrap. Thanks, Fred Brody, for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast.
1: Take care, everybody. If you're up in the northern U.S., stay warm.